Hi, this is Robert Furrow and welcome to TruthQuest Q&A, where we take questions and we look at them through the lens of Scripture. Our desire is to know what we believe based upon what the Bible says, receiving God's Word with all joy, but then searching the Scriptures to see whether or not those things are true. Not just taking someone's word on it, but really knowing why we believe what we believe. If you have any questions on prophecy, apologetics, the Bible, Christian living, then submit your question by writing it in the comments. Put the word question in front of it or a question mark in front of it so that we'll be able to recognize it and then we'll go from there. We'll take your questions from there. We have our first question up already and uh, this comes from a previous Q&A and the question is, when temptation is strong, how can I overcome it? So the Bible has a lot to say about facing temptation and winning. Uh, we know that according to, first, I think in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, um, that no temptation will overtakes you that is not common to man. So we all face temptation commonly. It's something we all struggle with. Uh, also, that Jesus was tempted in every way we are and yet without temptation. So the temptation isn't sin, it's giving into the temptation either with your thoughts or by your actions. Jesus told us that our thoughts were just as bad as our actions, so we can give in either way. Um, but we do want to fight it and we do want to battle against it and we want to give God purity. That's our desire. Um, a couple of things about facing temptation when it's strong. I've always said that opportunity is the sting of temptation. So you could be tempted to do something, but if there's no opportunity, then you can fight it pretty well. But as soon as there's an opportunity, that's where the rubber's gonna meet the road. And you can prepare for temptation. We know we're gonna receive it, we know we're gonna have it, right? The Bible says that my flesh struggles against the spirit and the spirit struggles against the flesh, so I don't do the things that I wish. So I, I, I know that already. So what can I do to prepare now for it so that when the temptation comes, I can stand strong? Well, there are a few things that we can do. The Bible says in the Old Testament, uh, it, uh, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. In fact, I think I'll pull up one of my notes here. Maybe I can share a couple of these scriptures with you. Let's see if I can, oops. Yeah, let me just see if I can pull these up. I'd like to put a couple of these scriptures up on the screen for you. All right. Let's just go with, um, maybe, maybe not folders. All full. All right. There we go. All right. So, um, yeah, let's just pull these up and uh, let me go ahead and get you on screen here and I'll be able to show you these passages. That's not the right one. Um, there we go. All right, so um, this is Psalms 37, four and five. Delight yourself also in the Lord and he will be able to give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way unto the Lord, trust also in him and he will bring it to pass. So delight yourself in the Lord. It, before temptation hits you, delight yourself in God. Love him, find pleasure in him, seek him, walk with him, know him. And when you do, he's gonna give you the desires of your heart, which means the desires are going to change and that the desires are not gonna be such strong temptations. Also, we have another verse that's very much like it, and that's John uh, 15, seven. Uh, if you abide in me, Jesus said, and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire and it shall be done for you. 
Well, that's really strong. Again, if I abide in him and his word abides in me, I can ask what I desire and it will be done for me. My desires will change. We also know in the Lord's Prayer that we're asked to be delivered from the evil one. We're supposed to, and this is a daily prayer. We, we should pray daily, deliver me from the evil one and lead me not into temptation. We know that God doesn't tempt anyone. We know that Satan's involved in temptation and we know that we are enticed when we are drawn away by our own desires and our own lusts. And we also know how dangerous temptation is. The Bible says it's destructive. Satan is a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. He wants to destroy you. It's uh, deceptive. Hebrews tells us to st that we need to watch out for the deceptiveness of sin. We're not, we're not deceived by the deceptiveness of sin. Sin gives you this promise. It's, I've often compared it to a lure when you're fishing. You catch a fish with it because it thinks it's real. It was the promise of something that wasn't true. And that's what Satan does. He gives us this temptation, us thinking that we're going to be satisfied and fulfilled and we don't know what we miss out. We don't know what kind of destruction comes our way and we don't know how it ends up leading to death. So we can prepare to face temptation beforehand. When you do face it, when you find yourself in the midst of it and you're like, what do I do now? And you're really ready to fight and give in and you got this battle going on. Remember that the scripture says that no temptation is overtaking you. That's not common to man. God is faithful along with the temptation. He will provide a way of escape. So look for that way of escape. And if you do fall, then if you do give into that temptation, immediately repent, make things right. Don't wallow in it. Ask him to forgive you. You can have that heart that is uh, really desires to, um, you know, that can be broken before God, broken and contrite. And that's good. But don't feel defeated or condemned. Uh, get back on that horse again. Deal with it and move on. And prepare yourself to face temptation in the future. So I hope that answers the question. Temptation is strong um, when we have opportunity. And we can prepare for that now. So that we're not tempted now, what can I do now that would be edifying in my life that would strengthen me so that I would not fall into any kind of temptation? I also believe that every, every temptation can be one. I don't believe that I could go without sinning. There's sin I do without even knowing, the Bible says. But I do believe that every temptation that we face can be one. All right, so thank you for the question. I really appreciate that. It's good to see all you guys here. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and start taking questions now. I uh, hope you guys are having a great day. Hope you're really blessed. Hope you're staying close to Jesus, uh, really uh, doing the things that you have to do uh, to make that happen. All right. Um, and I also put out that this broadcast was going to start at 3.15. So if you don't, don't come over until later, sorry about that. All right. So um, it's good to see you guys. Good to see you, Daniel. Uh, thanks for being here. And uh, we are, I'm looking for the first question. Well, the second question, we have a question from Jari. And if you do have a question, it could be about apologetics, prophecy, uh, the end times, eschatology. It could be about Christian living. It could be a hard, difficult question that, that you're looking for an answer to, all right? So Jari has a question. Um, is Spain mentioned in the Bible, Tarshish prophecy is a little lion of Tarshish, Mexico, or is Tarshish, uh, Tarsus, Turkey? I believe that Paul was from Tarshish, and that's in Turkey. It's right down at the bottom of it when it comes to the coast. And so when the Bible talks about Tarshish, I really believe it's talking about Turkey. Um, I'm, not, I'm not an expert 
on biblical places and names. So there could be something similar, uh, but I don't think there is. I think Tarshish is talking about Turkey itself. And um, I, I believe that Turkey is mentioned in the last days, by the way. It's mentioned as coming against Israel. It's part of the coalition of armies in Ezekiel 38 and 39 that in, the, in what we call the Battle of Gog and Magog, and they come down against Israel, and Israel wins. And the whole world abandons them. It's, it's God that fights for them, and God that allows them to win. Uh, they are in the land today because God has fought for them, and I believe that they will remain to be in the land because God continues to fight for them. All right, good to see you, Jari. Hope you're having a great day. Um, I'll, I will look now. Let's see, I'll bring in the next question that we have. We have a question from Adrian. Adrian says, hi, Pastor Robert. Hello, Adrian. Hope you're doing well. Exodus 3.14 says, And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, I am has sent you. Can you talk about what the name I am tells us about who God is and his character? Thank you, and God bless you. Well, thank you, Adrian. I think that's, yeah, I think that's awesome. Um, so God's name is I am and it's been said that only God can really say that because by the time that I say I am I was so I can't really say I am I am now but I have to say I am again I am again God always is God is the great I am so he's it's always been in existence he always will be in existence he can say I am and in another second he will be I am in the same way that he was a second ago uh, for me, I may say I am, and then I may die. God will never die. He is the He is all consistent. He never changes. Of course, Jesus in the book of John had seven I am statements. At one point he says, before Abraham was, I am. And then in the garden of Gethsemane, when they he says, who are you looking for? And they say, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus says, I am, and they fall back on the ground. So Jesus is the great I am. And that shouldn't surprise us. That's in the book of John because it's in verse 1, chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, John 1, 14. And uh, we beheld the glory as of the only begotten of the Father. So um, uh, let's see, what else can we say about the name of God? Um, we know the children of Israel wouldn't mention it, right? That they wouldn't say what that name was. Um, we also, what else do we know about God's name? Um, we know that there's power in, in God's name. And we know that by the time we get to the New Testament, we're using the Tetragrammaton, so they wouldn't write it out. So we have the Tetragrammaton, um, which is just a, um, it's just four Hebrew letters, Y-H-W-H, that, that means the name of God. And um, I'm, I'm wanting to make some t-shirts that just have the Tetragrammaton on it. That's all. And um, it, it, I think that would be awesome. Uh, also, if I were to get a tattoo, I would get a tattoo of the Tetragrammaton, the name of God, maybe may, somewhere where it's visible so people can go, what is that? And I can go, that's the name of God. Um, my late wife had Jude 21, there's only one chapter there, tattooed on her hand. I was talking to my wife about it today. Um, Keep yourself in the love of God, it says, and goes on to a couple other things. But she would use that to witness. She'd be getting a haircut or whatever, and people would say, well, what does, what does that mean? And so she'd be able to talk to them about the Lord. So Tetragrammaton would be a great way to do that. Thank you, Adrian, for your question. Hopefully um, that answered it. Uh, that, that was the revelation of Yahweh, 
Yahweh says, or Jehovah, whatever you want to say, I am God and there is no other. He is the only God that there is. When um, we have some theologians now like Michael Heiser who talks about Elohims being other spirit beings that are on the council of God, and some of that may be true, but there's still only one God, and that is Yahweh. I am God, said Yahweh, and there is no other. So that's really important to understand, all right? I know that um, the Mormon church likes to try to point that out, but the Mormons teach that, that Yahweh was not God and that Yahweh would become God, uh, that, that Yahweh became God. So he was following another God on another planet. So it's nothing like uh, Micah Heiser teaches. All right, so thank you, Adrian, for your question. I appreciate that. Hopefully I, I uh, went down the right path there for you. If not, you can ask a follow-up question. Um, I'm gonna bring in David here. David, how are you? Good to see you. Uh, and so David says, um, what are the benefits about the rapture? Does the Antichrist appear pre-tribulation or mid-tribulation? I was always led to believe that he appears before the rapture. I don't believe so. And I'm, I'm gonna tell you why, David. Um, because the Bible says, when we see these happen, things happening, look up, your redemption draws nigh. Jesus is our redemption. We want to look up because he's drawing near to us when all these things start to happen. We aren't told when you see these things start to happen, look for the Antichrist. We're never told to look for him. The only thing that we're ever told about it, uh, discovering the Antichrist is the number is the number of a man and him who is wise and it says something like that. But it doesn't ever tell us to look for him. There's a lot of Christians today that are looking for the Antichrist instead of looking for the return of Jesus. And um, we want to keep our eyes on the skies. Uh, he, Jesus said, I come back at a time you don't know. So you be ready, which means that Jesus could come back right now. And I believe that he will return uh, for, for this church. There, we will meet him in the air, as it says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And it talks about that the, the mystery of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And then the Antichrist will be revealed. Um, he may be on the scene before that. It may be pretty, uh, Christians may be going, this could be the guy because of what the Bible has a lot to say about him. But as far as his revelation, I think 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 helps us there as well because the Christians there thought that they were in the tribulation period and they were in distress. And Paul writes them and says, this day is not going to come unless the Antichrist comes first, meaning he's going to be revealed in the tribulation. They were not in, they thought they were in the tribulation and they weren't, and he says the Antichrist is gonna come first, not before the rapture of the church, as some try to say, but before, the in the midst of the tribulation period, the Antichrist is gonna be one of the first things to come on the scene. So that's what I think about um, the Antichrist. Could I be wrong? Yes. It does, do we need to be dogmatic about these things? I don't think we should. Should we call people that believe different than we do names? Should we be hateful? Never, right? The servant of the Lord must not quarrel but be gentle to all, able to teach, correcting those who are in opposition. So just throw it out there because this is such a contentious point. Um, but that's that's what I believe. And um, I do believe it solidly, by the way. And I also think that the war of Gog and Magog could either happen right before or after the rapture. Um, and the rebuilding of the temple could really be developed. And I think we're seeing some of those things happen today because the Jews are going back up on the Temple Mount. This is the first time it's happened that they're going up and worshiping on the Temple Mount. 
and I'm not even really sure what change took place that they're able to do that, but they're doing it today. And um, it's really amazing. So I think that that's another thing. So we've got the rebuilding of the temple, the Gog and Magog war, the revelation of Antichrist. Those things should all happen right at the beginning of the tribulation period, uh, maybe slightly before, maybe slightly after. All right, I don't, I uh, was still, even if we do know who he is, uh, we're still gonna look up for our redemption draws nigh. That's what the Bible tells us to do. Thank you, David. I appreciate that question. Hope you have a great day. And uh, I'm gonna look uh, for another question here. We have a question from Psych Man. Good to see you, Psych Man. Comes to us from YouTube. And um, Psych Man 45 says, in John 1, 4, 6, by this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Are these the spirits between which the gift of discernments help us to distinguish? Uh, let me go ahead and go uh, to that passage. I want to just kind of take a look at this. Um, and so it's John 4, 5, and 6. Or 4, 6. John 4. Let me go to six here. Um, John four, six. Oh, first John four, six. All right, let me go ahead and go to first John. All right, and get to uh, first John um, four and get to uh, around six. Let me get there. I'm gonna go ahead and bring you guys in here. Um, bring it up on your screen. All right, so we're gonna start in verse four. You are of God, little children, and have overcome them, because he who is greater than you is, is greater than he that's in the world. They are of the world, therefore they speak as the world, and the world hears them. We are of God. So it's talking about this distinction between the world and, and God, and that Satan's in the world, and greater is he that is in us than he that's in the world. This is one of the ways we know Christians can't be possessed. Then in verse six, he says, we are of God. We're not like them, we are of God. He who knows God hears us, but he who is not of God does not hear us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. So this is very similar to the kind of things that Jesus said. So Jesus would say things like, if you were of my father, you would have followed me. But since you are not of my father, you have not followed me. This idea that there was this certain group of people that had never heard of Jesus but they were really truly following God and when they were exposed to Jesus, then they received Jesus. And this kind of idea that verse six, we are of God, he who knows God hears us, he who does not know God does not hear us, uh, is just, they're, they're part of the work that God's doing and already, and then he who, is, um, he who is not of God does not hear us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. And, um, ah, I would say, it's talking about those who are in the world and those who know God, and by this we know the spirit of the truth and the spirit of error. Um, maybe he's talking about discernment, or maybe he's talking about the life of the one who's preaching it. So you, you have somebody who's preaching something that's true, but they're a new age person. We look at their lives and we go, they're not of God. No matter what they say, we know it's a spirit of error. They could be teaching the truth, but it's still the spirit of error behind them. So the person that's going to bring a spirit of truth is going to be the one who knows God. If you don't know God, you might be saying what's right and true, but you got a spirit of error about you and sooner or later it's going to be revealed. 
So this is the way we know the spirit of the truth and the spirit of error is the one who knows God. That's what I'm seeing there in this text. Um, I do believe that there is the gift of discernment and I've known people who've had it really strong. I, I believe I have it uh, and I there, there just are, are times when I'm able to discern and it's proven out. Um, I've known people that have had it much stronger than me. People that say to me, there's something not right. I don't know what it is for that person, but there's something not right. And I'm always the guy that's like, hey, let's not judge them, all right? And we shouldn't on, on what we think. But if somebody says something like that and then it bears out that something's not right, then that is the spirit of discernment. So you can, by the spirit of discernment, know what is the spirit of truth and what is the spirit of error. But this particular verse is telling us that if someone knows God, really knows him, then they've got a spirit of truth. If they don't know him, doesn't matter what they're trying to do, they have a spirit of error. There's a lot of teachers who have the spirit of error because they don't know God. They haven't been able to develop a real relationship with God. So um, thank you for your question. Let's see where we are. Yep, thank you. Nope, that's not it. Um, thank you for your question. I appreciate it, Psych Man. Always good questions. Hope you have a great day. We'll see you later on. We have a question here from Tyler. Is that right? Yep, Tyler. Tyler says, a quote from Piper that says, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied with him. Your thoughts on that statement would be great. Thanks, Tyler. I appreciate that. Yeah, I think that's a great statement. Um, your most God is most glorified when we are the most satisfied in him. I think that's the state that God wants us in. That's why verse I quoted earlier during this Q&A, delight yourself in the Lord and he'll give you the desires of your heart. If you are satisfied in him, you're delighting in him, you're abiding in Christ and his words abiding in you, you can ask whatever you desire. That's where God is the most pleased with us. And when we are so drawn by the world, when we just think of the, this world and sexual sin, this world and pornography, uh, this world and and the 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 growing um, rebellion against God's word, the more we're, we're like the world. If we delight ourselves in the world, we're going to find ourselves in great temptation. But if we delight ourselves in the Lord, God will give us the desires of His heart of our heart. It means that which we delight ourselves in is going to be that which we become the most like. And I think that's incredibly powerful. So I think this is a great quote from Piper. God is most glorified in us when we are the most satisfied through him. And if we're satisfied in him, we're not going to be seeking the things of this world. So thanks, uh, Tyler. Great quote. Thank you very much for your question. Really appreciate that. Thanks for sharing. Hope you have a great day. And we have a question from Amber. Amber comes from Facebook. Big question here. Let's see if it fills up everything. Not quite so much. Um, I, I readjusted everything in the camera, uh, backed away from it a little bit so we could get bigger questions on here without them covering me up. I was much closer to the screen before. Um, question, I know you've probably answered this question a lot, but can you explain the Sabbath, what is true for us? I know God made the day of rest, a day to be in one with God, and religious Pharisees made it burdensome, uh, a burdensome day, with man-made rules, but is Jesus our Sabbath or how do you go about the Sabbath for us now? I get told by other Christians, I don't respect God's word if I don't keep the Sabbath, but what does that mean and how do I keep the Sabbath? 
Well, thank you, Amber. I really appreciate that. I'm gonna move this down a little bit. I really appreciate your question. And I wanna say, first of all, I've got a hot topic on it, and I've also got a longer teaching on it. So if you go to our, I know you're on Facebook, but if you go to our YouTube uh, uh, channel and you search on that channel for Sabbath, then both of those should come up. Maybe Daniel or one of the other moderators could find that and put that up in the links, put the links to those studies or at least one of them up there. It will really help you because I'm going to share with you what I got off the top of my head. But I go into details and show the scriptures and everything, uh, especially in the longer one. I show the covenant when God made the Sabbath, that it was with Israel, that he made it with Israel. So the Sabbatarians today are very much like the Pharisees of their day. These are the people that are telling you that you don't respect God if you don't keep the Sabbath. Or you've taken the mark of the beast if you go to church on Saturday. Okay, These kind of arguments are, first of all, they're very unbiblical because the Bible says in, I think it's Romans chapter 14, yeah, Romans chapter 14, that let one day one man esteem one day above the rest and let, let another man esteem every day alike and let each be fully convinced in their own mind and don't worry about him. You worry about yourself. And I'm paraphrasing it, but that's what it says. And um, the Sabbath was never, the Sabbath was never re-given us in the New Testament as a, as a commandment. But also Jesus, who became the fulfillment of the law, became the high priest by the order of Melchizedek, became the sacrifice by offering his own sacrifice on the cross and made an end to the work of bulls and goats, which covered sin because Jesus took, a, took away sin. Jesus said not one jot or tittle of, the, tittle of the law, which is a dot and across the T's, will be, will be removed until it is completed. And Jesus is the completion. Moses opened the law and Jesus closed it by completing it. He became everything. So according to Hebrews chapter 4, there is a rest people haven't entered into. Jesus himself said, if you are weary and heavy laden, come unto me and I will give you rest. He is our rest. So a couple of things Sabbatarians have done to me. They'll come up to me and say, uh, they like to try to trap, you know, pastors. So they'll come up after service. Uh, do you believe in the Ten Commandments? And I always know what they're going for when they bring that up. And um, I'll say, what do you mean? Do you mean, do I think we got to keep them? And they're like, yeah, you have to keep the Ten Commandments. And I'm like, no, I don't because I'm not Israel. And that really throws them for a loop. I do believe I have to keep the command. What is the fourth commandment? I do believe that, but I keep it in Christ. He is my Sabbath and I find my rest in him. I just like to mess with them by throwing off uh, their little little question and instead of, and then I'll, I'll go, go on and explain it to them if they would like. But um, um, I said that they were like the Pharisees of their day. So they rewrite the Sabbath to mean go to church. So they go to church on Saturday and they go work keeping the Sabbath. The Bible never said anything about going to church or to, um, or to the synagogue on, on Sabbath. Keep it holy, but nothing about going to church. And so you go to church on Sunday, no somebody else goes to church on Saturday. Hey, each man to his own, right? And, and as I said, Romans 14 says, leave each other alone. He's God's servant. Who are you to talk to him? You, who are you to say anything about them? They are God's servant. So rest and trust and know that we have the example in the Bible, never told to meet together on the Lord's day, but we have the example that the church started meeting on the Lord's day. And it's just been uh, a tradition for us that has come all along. 
If you want to meet on Saturdays, you can. You don't have to meet on Sundays. It's just a tradition we find that starts in the Bible. If you want to meet on Tuesdays as your holy day, you can do that. It's up to you. And these people are putting uh, works on it. And they remind me of the Pharisees who said Jesus was breaking the Pharisee. They rewrote the Pharisee and then claimed Jesus was breaking, excuse me, they rewrote the Sabbath, then claimed Jesus was breaking it because he broke their laws. And they were teaching, Jesus said, the commandments of men, the traditions of men as the commandments of God. So they're taking the traditions of men and they're teaching them as the commandments of God. So know that it doesn't have anything to do with what day you go to church. In fact, God has told us in the scriptures that isn't even to be considered. All right, so stand strong there with that. Uh, serve God and you'll find that a lot of the Sabbatarians, I'm not saying they don't love Jesus or they don't know him. I'm just saying you'll find a lot of Sabbatarians are legalistic. Once you get legalistic and you start putting salvation based upon what you do, you get away from faith and grace. We're saved by faith through grace, not of any works, lest anyone should boast. And I think you're on kind of some dangerous area, some dangerous territory. All right. So Amber, thank you very much for that question. I really appreciate that. I hope that we can get those, uh, do look at those teachings. Um, the hot topic, uh, it's, I don't know, eight, nine minutes long. And then the um, full length teaching, if you're interested in more of that, I go into a lot more detail. I look at all of the scriptures and I break them down. All right. So um, thank you very much. Um, all right. So if you guys have a question on here, we have a question from Peter, Peter Lopez. Um, so Peter says, I attend the men's Bible study here at Calvary West Campus. We are studying the Gospel of Mark. Can I hear you explain Mark 9, 49 and 50, clarify fire and salt? Yes, I would love to. So let me just go ahead and bring that up. So we can take a look at that text together. Mark, did you say nine? Yep, nine. And then we gotta go to we gotta go to verse 45. One chapter. Um 42. Alright, so 45. And in your foot causes. Alright, so let's just go back a little bit. Um, I'd like to take it in context, Peter, and make sure that we read the context together. So um, let me go ahead and bring you guys, bring the scriptures up for you. So this is a section of scripture where Jesus warns of offenses. All right. Um, and he says, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to stumble, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. Jesus says this about non-believers, about children and new believers. And he doesn't say that's what's going to happen to him. Uh, in the passage we're covering tonight in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, God's talking about sexual purity. And he says, if anybody's defrauding a brother or, or leading someone astray, I'll judge them. So God's like, I'm the one who's going to step up and judge. And here it says it would be better for you if you're going to do this. Go out in the middle of a lake somewhere, tie a millstone around your neck and cast yourself in the sea. And then it says, and he were, and he were thrown into the sea. Okay, so then verse 43. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter into life maimed rather than having two hands and go into hell, uh, into fire that there is never quenched. So here he's talking about extreme. Take, take, look, we have to take care of sin. And we got to do the extreme. If you've got 
right now you've got like this temptation and you're and it's causing you to fornicate or it's causing you and you're in this adulterous relationship and you're you're just you're you're brokenhearted about it as a christian you got to get to the extreme you got to cut it off you got to do what you can do you got to let somebody know you got to stop it you got to get it out in the open it's something radical is going to have to be done otherwise this thing could consume you it says that be, um, be thrown into hell where the um where the fire shall never be quenched and where the worm shall never die and the fire is not quenched. So we get to verse 45 and this is the verse you were asking about, I think, right? Let me just make sure and check and make sure that that is what you were asking. Oh, 49 through 50. Wow, I started really early, didn't I? All right, well, let's um, let's go down here a little bit. Oh, it's the whole other section. So <laughs> that's really funny. All right, so tasteless salt is worthless. All right, so for everyone who will be seasoned with fire, and every sacrifice will be seasoned with salt. Salt is good, but if salt loses its flavor, how will you season it? Have salt in yourself and have peace with one another. All right, so Peter, great question. And I, it's, it just hasn't been that long since I've taught the book of Mark. And I, I'm, I'm drawing a blank here. And rather than pretend like I know exactly what the fire and the salt is, um, I would like to be able to take this and put it on another study where I can go back. I'm just curious now. And um, I'm not sure. I could probably take a better guess. And this is just a guess at this point um, at what the salt is. So salt preserves. Salt is good, but if salt loses flavor. It's good for nothing. And we're preserving the world. Have salt in yourself and have peace with one another. Um, so we wanna be of those who preserve, we have peace with it. Um, seasoned with fire and every sacrifice will be seasoned for everyone will be seasoned with fire. Um, gosh, I just don't even wanna guess at it. Uh, I right now can't remember. Um, I'll look back at my notes and um, see what kind of notes I took on it. And then I'll get back with you, Peter good question you win the prize for stumping the pastor and for that we have a tetragrammaton t-shirt for you that's what we're going to do in the future um not now we don't have that now sorry i'm just joking but um i uh i do uh, want to make those t-shirts and uh, we may have that around for a prize for those who can stump the pastor and i am stumped by this so i'll take some time to look it up all right peter and um, if you would ask the question again um, perhaps I'll throw this one on the beginning of next Wednesday's uh, Q&A or maybe next Saturday's and um, we'll cover it then. All right. Thank you very much. Good question. Um, uh, I'm interested in it as well. Uh, so Joe has a question for us. Comes to us from Facebook as well. So Joe says, sorry to um, harp on this subject but I don't believe you answered my prior question fully regarding mediums and psychics, all right? Yes, the Bible says to stay away from them. However, what do, what do you say about where it is written, one is given, Corinthians 12, 9, gifts of healings and 12, 10, works of miracles, which is why I'm still asking for further clarity. All right. Um, so that's the passage where, let's just go there. Let's go there, Joe, and let's just take a look at it. I, I, I know what it says. I'm familiar with the passage. I just don't want to misquote it. 
um, especially since you've asked this question a few times. All right, so let's just go ahead and go there. So we want to go to verse 12, and then we want to be in verse 9 and 10, right? Um, let's see, 10 to another, the work is a miracles, 9. So I'm going to back up a little bit too here. I'm going to just try to see. So we're talking about spiritual gifts and um, unity and diversity. Um, I'm not going to go back too far. Let me go ahead and, and put the scriptures up on the screen for you here. Uh, so you're talking about psychics and mediums. And then asking about this, this passage. I'm trying to connect with you here. Um, Joe, uh, it says, For to one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit, to another the word of knowledge through the same Spirit. These are different gifts that are given to people as manifestations of the work, the, the upon experience or the power of the Holy Spirit. Okay? To another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healings by the same Spirit, to another workers of miracles, to another prophecy, to another discerning of spirits, to another different kinds of tongues to another interpretation of tongues, but one in the same spirit works these things, uh, distributing to each one individual as he will. So let's go back to your question here. Um, that, However, um, we're, yes, the Bible says to stay away from them. However, what do you say about where it is written, one is given? All right, um, which is why I'm asked this question. This is not psychics. This is not mediums. These are Christians that have had the Holy Spirit come upon them and empower them. And God gives gifts to them. And he gives to each one different gifts. And the gifts are listed in Romans and Corinthians. A couple other places, we have a couple of the gifts. We have some offices of the church that the Holy Spirit is in charge of. Um, so these are not mediums or psychics. This is God giving to Christians the discerning, uh, uh, the discerning of gifts. These are people that love Jesus who would never go to a psychic, who would never allow a spirit that is an evil spirit to give them direction. So we, so I'm still going to stick to my, that we as Christians stay away from them, that this giving of these gifts in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 is the gifts of the Holy Spirit. God has given us the gift of the Holy Spirit. And when we do, we have this evidence, which is evidence, which is the gift of the Holy Spirit. First Peter chapter four says, as each one of you has received a gift, minister that gift to one another. There is no connection between first Corinthians and first Peter chapter four and mediums and psychics. There's not any connection at all. One is given perhaps by a demonic spirit, mostly fakes. The other one is given by the spirit of God for God's glory and for God's purposes. And there, there could be one that has the gifts of healings or one that has the gifts of a discernment, but it's disconnected completely from psychics. All right, Joe, thank you very much. Uh, ask again, all right? Um, if you want a follow-up question, then um, I'm not weary with it, all right? Just so you know, um, you can ask, um, you know, ask for clarification. I'd love, to, I'd love to do that, all right? So we have a question from Sharon. And Sharon says, at what age did Jesus know he was God? Um, what, a great, what, what, what a great thing to think about. You know, when he was born, he didn't know. We assume that he didn't say, Mom, Dad, listen, didn't mean to startle you, but, but I'm God. And just ask me anything you want. I'll take care of it from here on out. The Bible says he grew in understanding and wisdom. 
Jesus quotes the book of Psalms a lot. He quotes the book of Isaiah more than any, any other book. And Isaiah talks about him being God and Psalms does as well. I think those are probably two of the, two of the Old Testament books that has the most in it about Jesus being God. And so where was Jesus when he began to read scripture and go, I think that's me. And it was true. That's a heavy thought. I have no idea. It seems he had an idea by the time he was 12. Didn't you know, he said, when he was talking to the Pharisees and scribes as a 12-year-old in the temple when, when Mary and Joseph lost Jesus? And Jesus said, didn't you know I'd be about my father's business? So it seems at 12 years old, he's got some idea. Does he know completely? I don't know. It goes on to say after that, he grew in wisdom and knowledge and understanding. So um, it's just, we, we don't know. But I remember as a Christian, having this concept first dawn on me and just how awesome it was for me to think of Jesus being born and then discovering that he indeed uh, was God. So thank you very much for your question. Sorry, I don't have an answer for that. Uh, the Bible doesn't tell us what day it was. So we have a question here from Diana from YouTube. And she says, question, I noticed a lot of believers um, claiming and manifesting, claiming and manifesting, okay. It doesn't sit right with me. What are your thoughts? All right, so if you're just talking about claiming something from God, like if, if you're talking about um, God said, be anxious for nothing but everything with prayer and supplication, let your request be made known unto God. And I'm praying and I say, Lord, I, I'm anxious and I'm just asking you to help me and I'm claiming that scripture in the name of Jesus. There's nothing wrong with it right there. You're just asking God to fulfill his word. You're saying, I want that in my life. The terminology though has been hijacked to mean something entirely different. For, for years as a Christian, that's what the terminology was. And then all of a sudden came the name it and claim it. And it was like, you claim your healing, you claim your, and so I claim I'm, I'm not sick. I claim I have money, I claim I'm rich. And all of these things are not biblical. If you could go back and find a biblical reference that God wants you rich or wants you never to be sick, and don't go to 3 John 1 where it says, above all I would that you would prosper and be in good health, because that's John writing to his friend Gaius, that's the context, that's not God. God says, above all things I would that you would have a fervent love for one another. Manifesting, I'm not sure what that term means right now. I just don't move in those circles. Um, I'm curious as to what manifesting is. And so if you'd like to write down what manifesting is and then give me your thoughts of that. I also know there's people who lay on graves to try to get the spirit of that person from that grave. There's just all kinds of really weird stuff that's going on. But the name it and claim it comes from the prosperity movement, the, the faith movement that teaches that God wants you rich. And the Bible says, if anybody teaches godliness as a means of a financial gain, get away from them. First Timothy chapter six. So get away from them. And claiming scripture is a good thing. I think I wish we could just kind of get that back for us. When I read the Bible and it gives me a, a, a scripture that I can go, Lord, I, I, I want this. I claim this. This is your word. And I want it in my life. I claim it. I think that terminology is great. The way it's misused isn't. Um, if you can give me some clarity, Diana, uh, on what the manifesting, what, the, what, what, what they mean by manifesting, um, then I assume these are both the faith movement 
which is some Pentecostal and charismatic churches, not all of them. Okay, and you, you want to paint with too broad of a brush, all right? But this is some that believe this and um, and follow after it. Uh, but I'm not sure what manifesting is. I'm curious. Um, if you don't get it back to me, I'll look it up when I remember, because I'm just curious as to what uh, they say manifesting is. All right. Thank you very much. Um, all right. So I'm going to bring in a question here from Psychman45. If you are writing questions, if you are, are joining us and you would like to um, ask a question, then just put the word question down and then write your question out, then reread it, make sure it makes sense so that I can make good sense of it and it says what you want it to say. And um, you can ask questions about apologetics, uh, prophecy, hard questions in the Bible, Christian living, all right, any question, all right? Um, so Psych Man 45 says, uh, what are the gates of hell that, um, and should we, that we should be storming them since we are promised victory over them? So Jesus gives this reference when he's with his disciples up in Caesarea Philippi. It is one of the more beautiful places in Israel. Um, it is there that the Romans worship the god Pan. And so still to this day, because of him, it's called Banus. So if you go to Israel, that's Banus is Caesarea Philippi. When you get there, there's this giant outcropping that's there. And um, uh, as I said, again, it's, it's beautiful. And Jesus said to Peter, you are Peter, which is to say rock. But on this Petra, which is bedrock, I will build my church. So Jesus wasn't saying he was going to build it on Peter. He didn't say, and on Peter, I'm going to build my church. He said Petra, the bedrock, which is Jesus. And then he says, and I give you the keys to the kingdom. So you and I have the keys to the kingdom to let people in and out. We know what it is. We have the word of God. We're walking with him. We know him. We know what the truth is. And if you, since God calling you, and you open up John 1.12 and receive him, then you can be made a child of God. And your spirit will come to life and you will be completely transformed. We've been given those keys. We can let people in. And I've told people before when they said, pray for me that I can go to heaven. Just been passing. I've said, I've got the keys. I can let you in. You want to know, I've got the keys. I'll let you in. And, and then Jesus says, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against you. So context is very important. The gates of hell are not chasing us. The gates of hell are stationary. Hell is the place of eternal destruction. And so we are the one that, as you say in your question, storm the gates of hell. And they won't prevail against us. People are going to get saved. We, we think, I hear people now saying that today seems to be a time when it's so hard for people to get saved. So many people aren't getting saved. We see a lot of people getting saved. Every once in a while in the service, we'll, we'll have no one who will respond. But for the most part, every service, we have several people who respond and a lot of young people who respond too. God's moving on their lives. Not everyone is going to get saved that you give the gospel to, but we're guaranteed success. And so I just say, give people a chance. Invite them to give their lives to Christ in whatever way you want to do that. I don't think that there's a method we've been giving for doing that. I just think we need to do it. And however you do it, and I think that people will get saved. And we are, as it says, I think it's the last verse in the book of James, he who saves a sinner from his ways uh, snatches a soul from hell. So we're snatching souls from hell, bringing people into a real relationship with Christ. I also think follow-up is very important. 
And um, I would encourage you to really try to make a connection with those that you are leading to Christ. Get them a Bible, help them begin to read it, begin to talk to them about what Christianity is, know that they're baby Christians, they've got a spirit that needs to grow. Um, so we have a robust uh, New Believers uh, team at our church that do New Believers classes, come alongside of them, make sure to contact them, because I think that this is very important. But the gates of hell will not prevail against us is in regard to the keys that we've been given as Jesus builds his church. And God could have chosen angels to spread the gospel, but God chose us, and I think that's great. I, mean, I think that's awesome. So great question, psych man, 45, I appreciate that. And I'm gonna look for more questions now. Um, so I just kind of scroll down through here and look for where there's questions and then bring them in. We've got another question from psych man, two in a row. Write down another one fast. Psych man, maybe we'll get there for the third. Question, fruits and works, kind of synonymous. If not, please describe the difference. Yeah, um, I think I can. So you can do a work without being a fruit. But a fruit can be a work, but there are works that are not fruits, okay? So I think I've said that. So there are works that are fruits, and there are works that are not fruits. So if you think I'm saved because I go to church on Saturday, and so you just go to church on Saturday and you think you're saved, that's a work. And you think you're saved by it, but you're not. That's not a fruit at all. A fruit is when you give your life to Christ and then you have evidences, you begin to do what God wants you to do. So you're transformed, you're radically transformed. Now you wanna do what God wants you to do and you see someone who's in need. Maybe they're just a homeless person that just looks horrible and normally you would have walked by, but something now as a Christian that you look and you ask God, how can I help them? So maybe you stop and talk to them. Maybe you, you try to find a way to come alongside and really help them instead of just walking by and giving them a dollar or two. That's, that's fruit and that's works. You're now doing things for Jesus, but you're doing it because it's fruit. The fruit is the evidence of what kind of a tree it is. So a good tree cannot bear bad fruit. So if you've really genuinely made a commitment to Christ, then there's gonna be fruit that follows you after you make that commitment to the Lord. But if you're just trying to do works, if you're like, I'm gonna go take care of the homeless, I know God's gonna be, God's gonna be okay because of that. Well, that's works and that's not fruit. It becomes evidence and sooner or later your fruit will be known. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit and a bad tree can't bear good fruit. Sooner or later, your fruit's going to reveal who you are. You know, under the statement, don't judge me. We just did a hot topic on that. Um, I could say, I'm not judging you, but I am a fruit inspector. And if I see good fruits, then great. But if I don't and you say I'm a Christian, but there's not the fruit, then I don't think I'm judging you when I say, ah, I think you better go and re-examine whether you've really made a commitment uh, to Christ. So I hope that answers your question, Psych Man. Um, it's a good one, and I think it's good for distinction, but there are works that follow Christians, but they are fruit, and you cannot have works that save you, and those are just works that don't produce anything because works can't save you, but works after you're saved could be evidence of who you are in Christ. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. Looks like we're not gonna get three in a row from Psych Man, but we are gonna get another one from Jari. Jari, good to see you again. Um, are Viet, Viet, uh, vegan diets wrong since we could eventually go back to eating fruit and water during the millennium? 
eating fruit and water during the millennium. It, um, is this all Adam and Eve are? All right, um, so Jari, I'm not quite sure the vegan diet, all right? So the vegan diet is no animal products at all. That's the vegan diet. So no eggs, no milk, um, no, obviously no chicken, no cow, um, no cheese. That's the vegan diet. Um, is it wrong? No. Not unless you think you're more spiritual because you do it. <laughs> it's, you're not wrong. This is bring some kind of spiritual pride. You can have whatever diet you want to have. You, you can be like, I'm on the all cheeseburger diet and just do nothing but cheeseburgers. I don't know how efficient it's going to be for you, um, but it's not wrong. Um, fruit, water during the millennium, and I don't know what it means. Is that all Adam and Eve have? And I don't know how fruit and water connect into the vegan diet, Jari. If you could write some clarification. Um, even if we don't get to it in our study today, we've got just a little bit longer. Man, time just goes by so fast um, here. Am I right in thinking it's, uh, yeah, it's 3.53. If you don't, if I don't get to it, if you wanna clarify what you mean by going back to fruit and water and what you mean by Adam and Eve, um, then I'll look at it, do it now, um, and then Daniel's gonna send me this log and I'll be able to look at it later and um, I'll be reminded of this and um, can take a look at it, all right? So let's go ahead and pick up another question. Thank you, Jari. Have a great day. I appreciate it. Hey, we almost had three in a row from a psych man. No, we didn't. Um, it wasn't a question. Um, all right, so now we have a question from Daniel. And Daniel is our moderator, in, in case you don't know, or one of our moderators. Thank you, Daniel, for your help. I really appreciate that. Love working with you. Um, will there be, and Daniel says, will there be sacrifices in the temple in the millennium? And if so, why? Yes, there will be, and I don't know what the reference is to it. Um, if I had the reference, I'd pull it up and show you. Um, but yes, and I do not believe that they are for any kind of forgiveness. I believe it will be like communion. Um, remember, the nation of Israel is established under the Messiah. There's going to be a temple, and Jesus is going to rule and reign on the throne of David during the millennium. So the children of Israel will go back to making sacrifices again, but this time I believe as a memorial to Jesus' sacrifice. That's what I think that these sacrifices are. They're not for themselves, for the, any kind of sin, but a memorial to the sacrifice that Jesus gave. And we don't know much about what those sacrifices are. So yes, during the millennium period, there will be sacrifices. I don't think it creates a problem. It doesn't tell us that they're sacrifices for sin. It tells us that they're sacrifices, and I think that they're a memorial sacrifice. So thank you, Daniel, and you might've been asking that for someone else. I realize that, but thank you uh, for your question. Um, and let's see what we got here. I'm looking for some more. So Adrian's got another question. It's kind of long. Adrian's asked from Facebook. So um, Adrian says, in 1 Corinthians 11.25, Jesus says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Is this the cup, uh, is this the new covenant spoken of by Jeremiah 31.33? But this is the covenant that I have made with the house of Israel, that after these days, says the Lord, I will put my law on their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Thank you and God bless. Thank you, Adrian, God bless you as well. Thank you for um, participating with us today and asking your questions. Um, the new covenant. 
is the covenant of his blood. That our sins are taken away, not by the law, that was the old covenant, but it was replaced by the new covenant. We also know that love is a key part of the new covenant, that we keep all of the law by love, um, so that when we take communion, we are taking a covenant cup. Uh, and as far as being a fulfillment of Jeremiah, um, I, and there's only two things I can think of that this would be. But this is the covenant that I make with the house of Israel in those days, says the Lord. I will put my law on their minds and on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. It could be the church, but it's, it's to Israel. And I kind of think this is the covenant he makes with them in the millennium. Kind of like what we were talking about with the last question about sacrifices in the millennium. I kind of think that God, this is the fulfillment of what Jeremiah says here in so many other passages that talk about um, the people will go and find a Jew and ask him. Uh, Eleven people will grab him by the sleeve and say, what, what do I need to do to know the Lord? And that God will be using Israel in those days. During that millennium period, it is a, it is a completion of what God wanted to do with the nation of Israel and all the promises that he gave and um, completing the work and, and ruling on the throne of David for that thousand years. So I kind of think that's what it is. Could I be wrong? Yes, I could be wrong. But as I look at it, um, that's kind of what I think. I think it's one of those two, e e either one. But the, the curious part to me is, um, this is a covenant that I make with Israel in those days, after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law on their minds. Israel still write them on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. All of them is in the, the uh, context of Israel and not the church. So I would find it hard to be really for the church. Thanks, Adrian. I appreciate that. So uh, I think we got time for another one or maybe two if we find some quick ones. So we have a question here from Debbie. Debbie says, the word tells us, hi Debbie, by the way, good to see you. The word tells us, uh, shalt, thou shalt not kill. If a person had a heart attack, crushed and took a life, crashed and took a life, <laughs> crushed, how will that be viewed in heaven, do you think? If it is a simple answer, I'm unsure. All right, person has driving down the road, they have a heart attack, and they crash into someone, that a pedestrian, let's just say, and the pedestrian doesn't survive, then I assume it was completely out of the control of the person that had the heart attack. And unless they can prove that they had a murderous intent, I'm having a heart attack, I'm gonna take that person with me, and they you know, killed them, then if, if they didn't and they just had the heart attack, if someone has a seizure when they're driving um, and they kill someone, they hit a pedestrian and kill them, they might be convicted of manslaughter if they've been told that they're not supposed to drive. But if they, it's the first seizure and they don't know and they have the seizure and they kill someone, then it's not gonna be manslaughter. And I don't think this would be manslaughter either. I don't think that in God's eyes, this would be, um, this would be murder, all right? I think it would be a, a tragic accident is, is what it would be, all right? So, and by the way, in the law, they did make um, they did make different laws and rules about when someone dies, how you go back and you look at them. So I'm not just saying that in the law, they actually said that, all right? And so I think we'll end up here with Psych Man, unless this is a real fast one. Um, so uh, Psych Man says, I think this is your fourth question today. Um, good, to, good to have you, good to have you asking questions. Uh, is it incorrect 
to label our forgiveness atonement. Isn't that an Old Testament concept? No, it, it is. Yes, it is an Old Testament concept. And, and no, it's not wrong for us to apply it to us today because Jesus is our atonement. So you would take an animal and you would sacrifice that animal and the blood of that animal would atone for your sins. So Jesus died on the cross and atoned for us. The Old Testament were examples of the atoning work of salvation on our part. So yeah, we can, we can apply it to us. We should apply it to us today. And it's applied to Jesus. It's a, it's a substitutionary work upon the cross that atones for our sins, meaning that he took our place, he paid the price. Um, the Bible says he became sin who knew no sin, that, that we might become the righteousness of God. That's the, the, the biblical word or the theological word for that would be atonement. That's the atoning work of Christ for us. So it is in the Old Testament, New Testament. Yes, it's a correct for us uh, to talk about the work Jesus did on the cross as atonement. Uh, I could say I have been atoned for, and by that I mean that I've been forgiven, made right with God, had everything taken care of. Um, so that's the way I would use forgiveness in, in, in atonement. All right, so Psych Man, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you guys all for being here today. I really appreciate you guys. I uh, love the interaction that we're having here. love the community that's being built. Um, we'll be talking about uh, the Q&A this weekend. I'll be telling the church that we're doing it. Uh, so maybe we'll get a few more people from the church that are there. Whatever church you attend, stay close to Jesus. Love him with everything that you have. Know that our differences are minor and we should never overemphasize our differences. And um, we just should love Jesus, stay close to him. We have a service coming up in a couple of hours at six o'clock. Uh, we're gonna be talking about how we should live our lives in light of the return of Jesus. Jesus is coming back. So how should we be living our lives today? That'll be in the service tonight. And we're going to be talking about loving one another. And we're going to be talking about purity and how we battle against temptation, how we make sure that we overcome them. So I look forward to seeing those of you that are going to join us here in a couple of hours. Uh, if you have any more questions while I'm finishing this up, write them out in the comment section. I'm going to get a log of all these comments and I'm going to take a look back at them for future starting questions for our Q&A. All right, so great to be with you guys. I hope you guys have an absolutely fantastic day. I hope you stay close to Christ. I hope you find yourself delighting in him and um, that God would give you the desires of your heart. God bless you guys. I'm going to go ahead and sign out now and we will see you Saturday for our next Truth Quest Q&A signing out.